Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is long-term investment considerations for pensions and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Timothy Linton, a global strategist with our multi-asset solutions group. With me today is Sorka Kelly-Skolta and Patrick O'Sullivan, both global strategists from our global pension solutions team, all with JP Morgan Asset Management. This episode is one in a series about JP Morgan Asset Management's annual long-term capital market assumptions, or 2018 LTCMAs, a set of estimates encompassing more than 50 asset classes and available in 13 base currencies, which is released each fall accompanied by deeply researched commentaries on the most pressing themes driving these estimates. For 22 years, investors and advisors have used our assumptions to inform their strategic asset allocation, build stronger portfolios, and establish reasonable expectations for risks and returns over a 10 to 15 year timeframe. Today, Sorka and Patrick will give us an overview of the 2018 assumptions, discussing how structural factors might affect asset returns over the investment horizon, and considerations for pension funds specifically. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. Thanks for having us, Tim. Nice to be here. Sorka, what are the key takeaways of this year's long-term capital market assumptions? I know our listeners will be eager to hear about the return assumptions across the major asset classes and how they've changed from last year. Well, I think the key takeaways is that we're seeing some stability now in growth globally, whereas for many years we've been revising downward our growth expectations. We feel that's now stabilised. And in fact, we've got room for a little bit more optimism than we did this time a year ago. So that's good news. And that means that we think we're beginning to move along this trajectory towards more normalised levels of interest rates, although that may take some time. So I think that we are now sort of moving into that era of normalisation is one key takeaway. But the other key takeaway is that notwithstanding sort of a reasonably nine outlook on growth, valuations are weighing very heavily on risk assets and on equities in particular. And so where we've seen just such enormous returns, particularly since the financial crisis on equities, that's really borrowing returns from the future. And from this point forward, that drags on the future potential return. So that's the not so good news. And I think it's an interesting combination between sort of interest rates normalising, have risen a little bit since last year, has taken expected bond returns up a little bit. But that sort of late cycle heavy weight on equity returns has taken equity returns down a little. And actually, for a typical investor, it comes out at a level overall expected return. Okay, so some of the secular outlook looking a bit better on terms of how the economic forecasts feed into these returns, but another year of strong asset price growth means that cyclical drags remain an important consideration for investors over this time horizon. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think in particular for pension funds, although they've enjoyed these spectacular returns for ever such a long time, the challenge they've had is turning that accumulated wealth into a pension or into a secure income for retirement. So even though we've come off the back of this fantastic bull run, pension funds are feeling kind of fragile at the moment. And the challenges around being late cycle, about expecting lower returns, in the future from here are particularly acute for Mm. pension funds. So Patrick, just picking up on that, before we talk about what the LTCMAs really mean for pension funds, can you give us a quick overview of where pension funds really stand today? Well, I think it'd be fair to say that pension funds are in a rather difficult place. We're seeing globally quite low funding levels. 
And a lot of this is driven by, as Sirka was saying, we've seen pension funds receive quite large returns since the global financial crisis, partially driven by bond returns being so high. But this has been in parallel to bond yields, discount rates falling. Um, as a result, their liabilities have increased. And while their returns have been strong, they've not been as strong as the growth in liabilities. A second place that they're challenged with is cash flow drag. So we're seeing a lot of pension funds now being cash flow negative. In the UK, it's over 55%. Across Europe, we're expecting it to be over 55% over the next 10 years. And the result of this is really that pension funds are underfunded and having to try and find some way of paying out by proportion to assets quite large amounts of money. And so, Sorka, how does that outlook for funding status look in the context of our LTCMAs this year? Yeah, well, as Patrick said, many pension funds globally are underfunded, and so they need to find return from somewhere in order to help close those deficits. And our long-term assumptions are saying that that's going to be an increasing challenge from this point forward. So I think the first part is about having to think more broadly about what sources of return to include in the portfolio to really push out into diversification and diversify beyond traditional assets and make greater use of active management across the piece. We used to say that diversification was the only free lunch in town. And then people began to say that diversification is all very well, but you can't eat diversification. And I think that spoke to the sense that it was nice to manage volatility, but it didn't really do much to improve your returns. But one of the things we're saying now is that actually you really need to use diversification to help push your return target forward. So in a sense, diversification kind of is your lunch, is what we're saying in the LTCMAs. So pension funds are going to have to lean hard on that. I think the other is just about how quickly then they might expect funding levels to repair. If you expect returns to be lower, then naturally you would expect all else being equal, that the repair of deficits will be slower than perhaps people had hoped or expected initially. Of course, the other way that funding levels can improve, particularly in the Western world where we've got marked market regimes, is if interest rates rise. And we do have an expectations of interest rates rising in our long-term assumptions, but actually probably not by so much that it's going to lift pension funds out of distress. And certainly in the US, a lot of it's already been priced into the market. So the general outlook for pension funds is that they're going to have their shoulders to the mill and repairing uh, deficits for quite some time to come. So, Salka and Patrick, when and how might this funding status begin to approve? And just thinking about the pension space globally. In the first instant, it's a, a return generation problem. So most pension funds will rely on investment returns over the long term to help fund liabilities or to repair deficits. And in Asia, for example, where there isn't generally so much mark to market in their regime, it's really that return challenge that will be front and centre. In the US and Europe, um, you'll also see that return challenge. But there's also the question about what happens to interest rates because we see mark to market in most of those countries. And as interest rates have fallen, that's meant that liabilities have been valued at ever higher levels. And we may see some relief from that if we begin to see interest rates rising those baked into our long-term assumptions. And indeed, as we've seen over the last year, and so that has resulted in some relief in the US. And actually, when we look at it, we 
don't think there's much more relief in the offings because most of it's been done between last year and this year. So if we look at how much US pension funds are already hedged, how much they have got allocated to fixed income assets, and where our expectations of interest rates lie relative to market expectations, there's really That's pretty already. much baked in the forward spreads already. In Europe, I guess it looks a little different. Yes. So in Europe, there's still quite a way for pension plans to improve their funding status. So a rise in yields will certainly help. So we see over the coming years, an opportunity for liabilities to decline as yields rise. And it also will improve as returns are generated. So it's going to be a trade-off between good liability management by maybe taking a shorter duration approach and ensuring that pension plans will be able to lock in those falls in yields as they arise due to increases in interest rates, but also generating the returns necessary to improve funding status. Right. So it seems like because fixed income yields in these assumptions are likely to normalise quite slowly, there's still going to be a significant appetite from the pension fund community for income-bearing assets. And with lower returns across the broad spectrum of risky assets in the LTCMAs, the suggestion is that pension funds have to get active and get inventive in the ways in which they try to meet their return objectives. Yeah, exactly right. And you also mentioned another critical thing there, which is about income assets. And this comes back to the point that Patrick was talking about and the need to service increasingly negative cash flow, just that there's more going out of pension funds to pay beneficiaries than there is coming into pension funds in the form of contributions. And that's particularly true for those plans that are closed or frozen and beginning to enter to runoff mode. But we also see it in some of the open and younger plans across Asia, or for example, in US public pension plans where there's just that imbalance. It might be more transient, but it's still there and it's been quite persistent. And a lot of the thinking we've done around that is how you can service those cash flows in a low yield environment. Uh, Because although we do expect yields to rise, we certainly don't expect them to sort of bounce back to historic levels. And we've been doing a lot of work around the kind of strategies you put together to help address that need. And Patrick, so with these pension funds that are becoming cash flow negative, they then become a forced seller of assets. Can you talk to some of the implications around that status? Well, I think the most fundamental implication of that status is the fact that if you think about being a traditional long-term investor, you can harvest risk premia where general market participants can't. So you can hold equities during declines because you don't necessarily need to meet some sort of payment obligation at that point. So this means that relative to most investors, you can harvest a risk premium. When you become a forced seller of assets, that means that at the inopportune times from your perspective, you're going to have to sell an asset, which means you're no longer in a position to actually lock in these long-term risk premium. As a result, you don't get the benefits of being a long-term investor. I see. And so I guess on the flip side, you could argue that on the upside, you get to lock in those gains when asset prices do perhaps a bit better than your cash flow needs might demand. But at the same time, that means that your general funding level is amplified and the volatility goes up rather than get smooth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Patrick, Sork has described pension funds becoming cash flow negative, which makes you a forced seller of assets. Can you talk about some of the implications of that status? So traditionally, pension funds and other large institutional investors have been able to ride out market uncertainty periods and been able to harvest long-term risk premium. So for example, they can harvest an equity risk premium by being able to hold on to equities during periods when they fall, when other investors are not so willing to hold those assets and sell. 
However, when you become a forced seller of assets, you can no longer access this risk premium. You're forced to sell at an inopportune time. And because you can't hold that asset through down periods or bear periods, you're forced to give away your liquidity premiums. Thanks. And so I guess the symmetrical argument is that you can lock in gains on the upside, but that just serves to amplify funding level volatility rather than smooth it. Is that something that some of the pension clients that you speak to would be able to tolerate? Well, losses will be more pronounced when your funding level is less than 100% than it will be when your funding level is greater than 100%. So your losses will exactly be magnified when you're Mm. uh, a forced seller of assets on the downside, whereas you do get some benefits from being able to sell off at opportune times on the upside. The asymmetry in the funding level status and the impact on on declines in equity markets will be much more pronounced. By being a forced seller of assets, you will certainly see that your funding level volatility will be amplified. Um, and this will be even more pronounced when you're underfunded, when you become a forced seller of assets. And I think that's really important if we sort of think that we are late cycle. Clearly, our long-term assumptions are thinking about the long term, but we also acknowledge that we're late cycle and that has to begin influencing your thinking about how to put together portfolios. And this speaks to an important point about resilience, that if you are relying on the orderly sale of assets to service that cash flow, well, you might find if we hit a bump in the road that that's not such an orderly process after mm, all. It becomes an operational challenge Right, as well. exactly. And so you both get this sort of balance sheet volatility effect that gets amplified just at the moment when <laughs> things are feeling rather uh, stressed anyhow. That, I think, should inform some thinking about how to risk manage portfolios over the next number of years. Okay, so turning to the assumptions themselves, we do have slightly higher fixed income equilibrium yields baked into our assumptions this year. But when we think about that challenge of negative cash flow in some of these pension funds and their demand for income assets to finance that cash flow, do you think the traditional spectrum of asset classes available to pension funds is going to to provide enough return? Relative to where yields have been previously, we do not foresee um, yields returning to those levels. So our long-term yield expectation for UK treasuries, for example, is around 3%. This is versus a historic level of about 5%. So we're going to see that pension funds will have to push out into new fixed income spaces in order to access the higher yields required. So one place that we do see potential for this would be private credit where higher yields will be available to pension funds. I think the other thing, Tim, is that although they may be rising, so is the level of negative cash flow across many pension funds, and that may rise faster than we Mm. see yields rising. We looked actually at across the net cash flow position of corporate pension plans across European, UK and US indices, just looking at accounting data. And just on a fairly crude measure of cash flow, we figure about three quarters of those plans were in negative cash flow. So more going out in benefit payments than coming in in contributions. And maybe around a quarter that would have been at the level of more than 2% of assets. And I think once you get to that level, this challenge about how you're going to do that, given the yield environment, becomes a challenge. Today, sort of 10-year yields are still below 2% in the UK, a bit more than that in the US. And our long-term assumptions assume that the US gets to uh, 3.5%. So if we've got about a quarter of plans are already at more than 2% net negative cash flow, and the direction of travel is for them to become more net negative cash flow because they're maturing and entering runoff, and we've got yields rising only slowly and 
taking as a benchmark, for example, 10-year yields in the US, we're expecting those to rise to about 3% over a number of years. You can see that the cash flow coming from the income isn't going to be enough to service the cash flow come the, uh, for, of pension funds. Um, so by itself, I think just income strategies aren't going to manage the cash flow problem for many pension funds that are entering into that runoff phase. You really need to look at redemption payments. Yeah, so it really means that pension funds need to be more intelligent about how they set up their fixed income allocations. So as Sir alluded to there, they certainly need to stop thinking so much about aggregate funds and start looking at buy and maintain strategies where they can lock in long-term yields and use principal repayments further down the line in order to actually meet cash flow needs as they fall due. It also means pension funds need to be a little bit more nuanced in where they look for opportunities. So for example, if you're participating in a market where insurance companies are capital constrained from allocating to treble B and double B rated bonds, this gives a very good opportunity for pension funds to find some value in an otherwise relatively overpriced market. I mean, I think overall we're saying that pension funds should begin to think about the way insurance companies do and that pension funds are effectively, once they're closed, turning themselves into closed annuity books. So it really becomes like the insurance problem once they manage to repair funding levels. But they're much less constrained than insurance funds, so they can pursue other opportunities that aren't open to insurance companies. So Patrick, in this year's long-term capital market assumptions, we've slightly raised our forecast for returns from fixed income assets. But in the context of negative cash flow for pension funds, will the income available from those assets be enough to suffice for, for the pension fund community? At the moment, I would say no. Pension funds relative to where they've had access to larger yields before will not have that access anymore. And you also need to think about the journey plan from where we are now to when these yields will normalize to higher rates. So during that period, pension funds are still going to be cash flow negative. They're going to be paying out proportionately more of their assets than they'll be on their liability side being released by the payments of cash flow. So as a result, while they can seek happiness in the future by having higher yields, the journey of getting from here to that point is going to be quite painful. Okay, so what are the implications of this underfunded status and how do you think pension fund asset allocation might adapt to it? Well, I think what's important is this issue of negative cash flow interacts with your your funding level and the need for return to repair deficit. Simply put, if you're paying out more in assets than of liabilities, then you're constantly sort of pulling down the funding level. It's a little bit like trying to fill a leaky bucket. Just as you pour the water in, it's immediately going out the other end. And so that creates an additional challenge for pension funds in that they need to generate more return or else contribute more in order to repair funding levels in order to offset that sort of leaky bucket effect. And it also means that these pension plans are going to be even more exposed to changes in interest rates. In order to immunise the plan from changes in interest rates, they're going to need to go for even longer duration than would be the case if they were fully funded. Why don't we speak about the effect of that on capital markets more broadly? Because pension funds sit on such a sizable amount of assets. How do you think this could affect the fixed income universe more generally? In some ways, you might think that if pension funds do adopt these type of strategies, so step into sort of buy and maintain holding bonds uh, over the long term as they get more fully funded, then in a way they're kind of stepping in to quantitative easing when banks are stepping out. And if you look at the size of pension assets compared to current central bank balance sheets, then in a number of key economies, they stack up to be uh, Mm -hmm. as large or, or, or even more, exactly. So it just means that... 
uh, I don't think you're going to see much of a supply-demand easement, if you like, from central banks stepping out of quantitative easing because pension funds are standing poised to step mm-hmm. in. And so in the very long term, if they do step in and sort of hold all of those bonds, then at some point, once they're fully funded and they've filled their boots with bonds, if you like, they won't need to buy any more. They'll just use the income and redemption payments to meet their cash flow requirements. And there's an open question, I think, much beyond the time horizon of our long-term assumptions. How will that affect our capital markets over the long term? Will we begin to re-equitize or see a shift in preferences for equities versus bonds? Okay, so Sorka, how might plan sponsors make best use of the long-term assumptions in their DC plan design and asset allocation? Well, I think, you know, coming back to this point about diversification, um, there are many plans could go a great deal further to better diversify their assets. And uh, that's particularly true in defined contribution, where there's been a strong reliance on sort of traditional liquid type assets. And we recognise there are other challenges around diversification in terms of capacity and liquidity and moving into lower governance, more challenging markets. But we do think that those are challenges that investors should embrace. And I think also there's been a narrative about diversification being a bit pointless since the financial crisis because it's been such a risk-on, risk-off, macro-driven world. It's been very, very difficult to find diversification. And uh, I think that has meant that many people have sort of spurned it in, in some way or felt that it wasn't worth the effort. But I think we take a more positive view and we, we've seen some opportunities begin to open up again. And one a good example is in global equities. You know, since the 1990s, we've been seeing sort of pairwise correlations across the developed world, countries in the developed world, just rising steadily. And that had been sort of a long-term secular trend. But over the last 12 to 24 months, we've not so much seen those come off as fall off a cliff. They've collapsed. So we're beginning to see some opening up of diversification across those markets. So that coupled with our low return world means that we really think people need to work hard to to find those diversification opportunities and make the most of them. I think it's very important when you think about diversification to realise that, as Sirk was saying, you know, a lot of people previously would have said that you can't eat your diversification. But what you certainly can do with diversification is reduce your overall portfolio risk. And by bringing your portfolio risk down, you bring more certainty to the return stream you're going to have on an ongoing basis. And that will actually improve your year on year compounded growth. That seems like a good recipe for alternative credit markets and things like core real estate. Is that something that you anticipate demand increasing for in in the pension space? Yeah, very much. We tend to talk about the missing middle, which is, uh, you know, all of these assets sort of credit and, and real assets, which to some extent don't make it into pension portfolios if they don't sort of perfectly hedge liabilities or if they don't sort of achieve the kind of returns that we've enjoyed from equities. And they kind of get orphaned a little bit in the middle of those two. So we call it the missing middle. And we certainly see that there's opportunity for a great deal of growth in that space. And also the size of the opportunity has increased massively over the last several years. One thing we looked at actually last year was the market capitalization of equities versus bonds. And that's traditionally we've thought of of being about 60-40 equity bonds. That's been behind the sort of traditional 60-40 portfolio. But actually, if you look at it today, it's closer to 40-60. Just the size and the degree of issuance in the bond markets means that it's overtaken the equity market in terms of size. So that's been an expanding opportunity set. And also, I think partly through the ongoing process of banks stepping back from direct lending and from mortgage markets a little bit, uh, we do see 
obviously a vastly growing space in the real asset space as well. And that's opening up internationally. And it kind of comes back to this point about, you know, we do see greater opportunities for diversification than perhaps we've seen historically. If we're just turning back to that negative cash flow position and, and the funded status that we mentioned, what does that mean in terms of duration hedging? Do you think that has implications for trends there? I think it certainly does. In a rising rate environment, uh, I would advocate taking a shorter duration approach, not being fully hedged so that you can take advantage of rising rates that will reduce your liability burden somewhat. But it's not necessarily certain when rising rates will happen. And so we do think that pension plans should start to increase their hedge ratio from where it currently is. In the UK, for example, at about 40%, up towards maybe 60 to 80%. So they still have the opportunity to take advantage of rising rates through a fall in liabilities, but they will be able to have a much smoother journey plan with a less risky balance sheet. Yeah, I mean, clearly pension funds and also insurers have suffered terribly from the duration mismatch by being short duration as interest rates have come down. And in some sense, it's difficult to say hedge it all now. That might feel more like capitulation rather than a a solution to the problem. But that said, we do think they need to start thinking actively about how they're going to step into that and increase that hedge ratio position progressively through time to build up their resilience to any sort of future wobble or sort of pull down in interest rates. Because ultimately, while a short duration position looks very attractive from this standpoint, it tends to be a low information ratio bet and you've got a risk budget that you can better spend elsewhere. And it really, I think, speaks to pension plans beginning to engage in more buy and maintain strategies where they can build a fixed income portfolio that's tailored to their specific liability profile rather than just buying an off-the-shelf market uh, tracking fund. Okay, thank you. The long-term capital market assumptions see the US dollar as slightly overvalued. What do you think the implications of a forecast for a weaker dollar are for pension investors specifically? I don't think it needs to be for pension investors specifically, uh, but clearly pension investors are generally pretty international in their disposition. And if you're outside the US, that will usually mean a big exposure to the US dollar. And so that, if you don't hedge it, has the potential to leak value from your overall portfolio. It's just going to pull down on returns if you're just exposed to that secular turn in uh, the value of the dollar, which is what's baked into our long-term assumptions. And it's difficult to say hedge for profit because that doesn't feel like the right message. But I do think it makes sense to hedge yourself against the risk of being exposed to that uh, leakage in value, uh, particularly since we're already forecasting relatively low long-term returns from risk assets. Of course, if you're in the US, it's a bit different, right? And of course, if you're in the US, you don't hedge because you can take advantage of the windfall from a falling dollar long-term from international positions. Great. And so historically, equities have provided the capital appreciation component of institutional investors' portfolios. Do you anticipate equities to continue to play that role? Yeah, that's a moot point. Uh, I guess if you look at how our equity assumptions are actually built, bulk of the return is coming from dividend payouts or or buybacks. And that's been a trend across the developed world for, for quite some time. And we haven't been seeing levels of capital expenditure that would return us to a position of that overall return being driven by growth. And of course, we're forecasting a relatively low growth uh, environment going forward. So 
So I think with high valuations, a lot of the return coming from return of capital to investors, it's hard to say that they're likely to be the growth engine of portfolios going forward. And then the question becomes, well, where is the growth engine going forward? And I guess we're seeing that in the private markets uh, more potentially, and also outside the developed world. And so in the emerging markets, you expect more of the returns to come from that earnings growth component rather than the dividend yields or buybacks, say. Right. Yeah. And that's the pattern that we see from the data as well. And what what does that mean in terms of emerging market debt? Do you think that's something that uh, pension funds could utilise in a portfolio? Yeah, I think emerging market debt is a very important asset class that should be considered more by pension plans. If we look at the global fixed income universe, emerging market debts were in about 20% of the universe at the and moment. And that's a really important point because 20 years ago it was almost nothing, right? And so the access is, is much higher now. Yeah. So if you were to eliminate that portion of the universe from your asset consideration, you're removing 20% of the opportunity set and an opportunity set that has quite a high spread attached to it. And a lot of which is investment grade, right? A huge amount of which is investment grade and already denominated in hard currencies such as US dollars. So really it's just an extension of the investment grade US market. I think the way in which it's covered in a lot of the press, it seems that Lots of investors might be surprised to know that the average credit quality of of EM debt is significantly higher than, say, US high yield. The world that you've described is one in which alternative assets are becoming increasingly attractive. But one of the big barriers to entry for, for lots of investors is the fear around illiquidity of these markets. Do you think that's something that's manageable in today's investing environment? Yeah, I think it is. And I, I think you need to adopt the mindset that it is a, a manageable problem to try and get past that fear, because that is potentially where the greatest growth opportunities are and the higher return opportunities. And I think some of that's going to be around the vehicles that you use to access these. So making sure that there are ways to orderly manage redemptions or that they're open-ended vehicles that can deliver cash flows to you through time. I think it interacts with the specifics of your own fund. So those which are super mature with very high levels of negative cash flow, it might be more difficult for them to embrace the very liquid end of the opportunity set. But there may be ways that they can incorporate some of the shorter term stuff, perhaps in direct lending. And I think it also means that you need to begin to model out in more detail exactly what it means to have that allocation to illiquidity. So rather than just having an a priori, I don't want more than 5 or 10% of my assets in these illiquid things. It's sort of saying, well, what does illiquid mean? And are there degrees of illiquidity rather than just a, a binary liquid versus illiquid uh, state? And what's my degree of tolerance for different levels of illiquidity? And how might I manage that in practice? Looking at the specific cash flows from your portfolio and also from your liabilities and how those might change in periods of crisis. I think you just need to get down into the weeds of that stuff a little bit more and then it becomes a manageable problem. And I think to take a step back and just think about what is one of the most powerful tools that a pension plan has at its disposal. Being able to access a liquidity is one of the most important tools it can use. So to limit itself and restrict itself from engaging in illiquid investments seems very short-sighted from my perspective. And I don't know if this is driven by the move towards mark-to-market or what, but it just seems like a very short-sighted manoeuvre. Yeah, I think it's probably overdone for many funds that certainly I talk to in in our market here in Europe. But uh, we've talked a lot about sort of 
negative cash flow funds and funds in runoff, but certainly those that are still open and growing, you know, US public plans, those in Asia or in the Middle East, where it's still sort of a growing population, they remain very long term investors. And while it's a careful not to become hostage to wishful thinking, if you like, they are in a position to exploit those longer term opportunities and carry that illiquidity. So they should certainly be thinking about how to how to get get in. And careful use of infrastructure assets, for example, can provide a good hedge against, for example, inflation, if that's a risk for your particular plan, that will be a lot cheaper than engaging in inflation-linked swaps or bonds, which are priced at a very high premium. Well, so taking those changes to asset allocation that, that you've suggested, how quickly do you think pension funds can make some of these changes in their portfolios? Well, I think pension plans can start to make some of these changes quite quickly. You can start by restructuring your fixed income allocation from a traditional aggregate funds towards a buy and maintain strategy. You can start to add emerging market debt. You can start to add small allocations to real estate or infrastructure. I think these can be accessed quite quickly. Yeah, some of them can. I think some of them will be a longer term project. And, uh, you know, particularly in the illiquid space, it's probably about finding capacity and finding the right Mm -hmm. partners to help you to succeed in investing those areas and building up your program uh, through time. I think it's also about keeping an open mindset on what assets make sense in your portfolio. So rather than a priori saying, this is the thing that I want, the shape that I want, and I'm only going to admit exactly that shape to my portfolio, maybe it's about just being out there in the market and seeing what kind of different things come at you and figuring out how can I make this work in my portfolio. So with all of these challenges, you're suggesting pension funds need to get a bit more creative and stay open-minded in terms of how they're going to respond to these challenges over the next 10 to 15 years. Right, which is kind of where we started Mm. out with this conversation, yeah. Okay, so staying with specifically these illiquid assets, what, what are the differences in terms of asset allocation over DC and DB plans? Yeah, well, it's tougher for DC plans to access illiquid assets because they usually require daily dealing, access for their members more regularly to change their lineups, uh, but also to just manage payments around what happens to in members' lives, deaths, transfers and so forth. So they usually demand a higher level of liquidity at the member level that makes it difficult for them to uh, access illiquid opportunities. But again, I think this falls into the realm of it can be a manageable problem if you set your mind to thinking about how you can incorporate that into Z, into DC, how you can get the right valuation points, how you can do true ups through time as the cash flows actually evolve. And if you believe, as we do, that that's where the greatest sort of long term return opportunities may lie, that's where the growth engine or significant growth engines will exist that should form a part of your return portfolio, then I think we need to find a way to embrace it. Thank you for joining us on Insights. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. For more information on this topic, find our research paper entitled Matching Cash Flows and Managing Liquidity in Maturing Pension Funds, authored by Sorka Kelly-Skolter and myself, Tim Linton, which is available along with other LTCMA research at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash institutional forward slash LTCMA. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. 
nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 2011-20355-E, in Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 551-438-32080. AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated. And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, Distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.